Amen. Good morning, Oakwood. Uh, my name is Mark Phillips. I'm the student minister here at Oakwood Christian Church. I'm really excited to be here this morning and share with you. Um, today, what we're going to be looking at is, as you saw from the video, uh, four pictures of Jesus. And now, we live kind of in a, in a society, in a world where, you know, being 2,000 years or so removed from when Jesus was on earth, sometimes it's hard to get a clear picture of who he actually is, who he, who he was when he lived, um, and, and it kind of gets a little convoluted. Um, and so hopefully today we're going to be able to see a clearer image of who Jesus is, and we're going to use uh, the Bible. We're going to use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often referred to as the Gospels. So before we get too much further in, let me pray for us. So if you would, bow with me, and, and let's ask the Lord to, uh, to bless us this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we uh, get to gather here together as a, as a common bond, Father, under the banner of your, your son, Jesus. And I pray that as we look in your word, as we continue in worship uh, today, that you would be honored and you would be glorified and that you would reveal truth to us. You are good, Father. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever been hanging out with some friends and maybe something like this happens where you're sitting with a buddy and they're like, uh, no, obviously this is, you know, if you're single, uh, you know, hey man, uh, you know that girl, like she's really cute, you should, you should check, check her out. Or, you know, maybe it's nothing like that. Maybe it's just like, oh man, do you believe what she said at work, right? Or something like that. And so inevitably, the next thing you do is you hop on social media, Facebook, right? And if, if you don't have one of your own, you probably have a, a kid or a grandchild who has it, so it's somewhat familiar. But you get on their Facebook and you look at their profile picture, right? And, and if you only have that of that person, you'd be like, I am not worthy, right? Like every time we look at someone's profile, it's like perfect. They bring in a professional and the lighting's like perfect. And, and, but that's not the reality of who they are. And so what you do next is you click on their photos and you start looking through. And it, if we're honest, sometimes it's really scary what we find, right? Because there's things in there that are like, who is this person? Why did they make those life choices? What happened, right? And so we see this clearer image the further we get in. It's like, wow, this person is actually really awesome. Or wow, this person is really strange. And we get this image of this person based on these pictures that we see of them. That's what's so great about having the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The Bible is comprised of two testaments or covenants, and there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the very beginning of the New Testament are these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by these guys who have different perspectives of the same person, Jesus. There's four Gospels and there's four impressions, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hopefully by the end we get a clearer image of who Jesus is. Through four separate and distinct lenses of Jesus' life and ministry, we get a fuller picture of what Jesus was like and hearing the impact he had on four distinct people. Each book is a picture of Jesus that reveals a side of who he is. And so what we're going to do is just walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to read every verse. Of, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we are going to look at all four of them, and what we're going to get is a picture, just a snapshot of this is who Jesus is. If we were to boil it down of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, that's who he is. And so we get to Matthew first, and what we find in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the one who breaks the cycle, the one who breaks 
the cycle. The Old Testament is like a spring, right? Not like a place where you get water or a season, uh, which we don't have in Oklahoma. We only have two seasons in Oklahoma. If you didn't know that, it's either hot and not hot. Uh, there's no seasons here. That's all we have. So if you're new to Oklahoma, if you're Air Force, like, welcome. It doesn't get better. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but... We're talking about like the coil, like a metal coil, like you see on cars and bikes, a spring, right? Uh, there's a spring in the Old Testament. And we're, what we're looking at here in the, in the Old Testament is a cycle, just like that, just like a spring, a cycle, right? The first part of this cycle is the catalyst. There's a catalyst. God does something good in the midst of his people, and that thing moves them closer to him. There's a catalyst. Something happens. God intervenes, does something, sends someone, and his people see it, and they are drawn closer to God. The second piece of this cycle is celebrate, right? God's people have just seen this amazing thing that he's done, and they celebrate. They're like, wow, God, you're awesome. Thank you for doing that incredible thing, right? The third part of the cycle, the third part of this cycle is complacent. At some point, God's people become complacent. They saw the good thing, they celebrate, and then they get complacent. And the fourth part of the cycle is consequence, right? Consequence. After our complacency, now there's consequence that comes with our decision and our actions. And this happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament, this cycle that's over and over and over. Here's a couple examples, right? The creation, right? The first part, the catalyst, God's like, boom, everything is made. And we're like, yay, because we exist, right? And we love that God created us, and so we celebrate. Celebrate. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they enjoy this perfect relationship with God, and it's amazing. And then at some point, they get complacent, right? God's like, hey, do whatever you want. This is amazing. Just, you're, you have total freedom, Enjoy, accept, don't do that one thing. That one thing, don't do that thing. Everything else, not that thing. So Adam and we were like, yes, got it, check. What's that thing? Let's do that thing, right? And so immediately, almost, it seems like this relationship that was there is severed. And the consequence, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. I think, unfortunately, we kind of look at that and think, man, they, got, they had to leave this really cool place. It's not just that. Right? If we look at the story and we look at the, the dynamics of what's happening there, Adam and Eve don't just get banished from the garden. They get banished from the perfect relationship they had with God. There's this moment where, where we read the creation story, we read this scene in the Garden of Eden, and, and we see this phrase, right, that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And sometimes I think we have this image of God. He's just this big, distant entity, this being that we can't really comprehend. But in this one moment, we see God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we see an image of this relationship that Adam and Eve and God had, and there was perfection, and there was no shame, and it was perfect. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, the consequence of that sin they were banished from that perfect relationship, right? Here's another example. When God pulls his people out of slavery in Egypt, the exodus, right? There's the catalyst. God does this amazing. He does all these plagues, and, and Pharaoh finally says, okay, 
you can just get out, right? And so they leave, and what do they, they celebrate their freedom. They're like singing songs, and it's amazing, and they, they're having a great time. And unfortunately, I guess they forgot too quickly how good God is, and they start worshiping idols. I mean, they're like barely across the Red Sea there, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's, God's literally on top of the mountain with Moses, like giving instructions on how to worship him, and they're down here making idols. They grew complacent. And then the consequence, an entire generation of God's people have to wait in the desert before they enter the promised land. There's a cycle over and over and over again. And the cycle happens all throughout the Old Testament. And then you get into the New Testament. And Matthew, the first gospel we get to, it introduces us to Jesus, the cycle breaker. And we start there in chapter 1, verse 1. And we see that the, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you're like me, if you grew up in church, you came across these genealogies and you dreaded it. You're like, what does this mean? There's just a bunch of names I can't pronounce who are these people? They're not main characters. What's the point? But if you grow up, you mature a little bit, you realize, man, well, Matthew's a pretty smart guy. God told him to write this down. There's got to be a reason. Let's take a look at this. Just there in verse 1. Son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that he would bless the world through Abraham's children. And Matthew points out that Jesus is the means through which that blessing happens right Genesis 12 now the Lord said to Abram go from your country your kindred your father's house to the land that I will show you oh man I <laughs> Abraham had a lot of faith right if you're like me if you're leaving the house if you're going anywhere you're like you have the GPS out because you like even if it's just like to work you're like I just want to know what's the quickest way to get there how long is it going to take I'm tracking my miles whatever um, God's like hey Abraham I want you to leave everything you know, everything that makes you who you are, everything that you own, everything that you're comfortable with, just leave it and go. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. Just go. If I'm Abraham, I struggle big time. Like, God, tell me where you want me to go at least. But Abraham listens to God and he leaves and this is what he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a huge statement. And if you know the story of Abraham a little bit, you know that at that point, he didn't have any kids. Like, none. They're having some trouble there. And so Abraham's like, I don't even have kids. How are you going to bless the whole world? I don't even have, a, I don't have any kids. What's going to happen here? How are you going to do this, God? But God makes him a promise. I will bless you. Just trust in me. And then if we go back to Matthew 1.1, we see that he made this promise through Abraham that Jesus fulfills. But then he calls Jesus something and he says, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is a word that we toss around a lot. We don't really use it very often except in reference to Jesus. But a Messiah was a person who had been anointed or set aside for a specific purpose. 
To anoint someone, you, you put oil on their forehead, uh, and, and it was a symbol that they would be publicly declared as, as set apart as something special to be used by God. The Bible records kings and priests and prophets uh, being anointed. But Matthew does something interesting. He calls Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah. Right? He, he's not calling him a Messiah, just another one, just just another person set apart. Jesus is the Messiah, which, which means he's calling him the one who's been set aside, the king, the prophet, the priest who has the power to change things. That's a big statement just from the first verse from a genealogy that we didn't think mattered. But Matthew is saying Jesus is the one with the power to make the change in your life, the cycle. Have you ever felt like you're just stuck in your sin? At some point in your life, I mean, you're sitting here, some point in your life, God did something in your life, and, and there's a catalyst, you're like, wow, God, you are good. At some point or another, I recognize you're powerful, you, you have the power to change things, and so that, that created a celebration. Maybe that's why you're here right now, because I'm celebrating what God has done in my life, the catalyst that he's presented but at some point, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we grow complacent. We start going after the things that we want and the things that we desire, and we forget what God has done. And then there's consequences that follow that, and, and maybe you feel stuck in your cycle. Just like the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, there's, there's a cycle. Maybe you just feel stuck. Jesus is the, in the business of breaking cycles Jesus breaks our cycles. Do you ever feel like you can't overcome your own circumstances? Jesus is the means by which you overcome them. You are not powerful enough on your own to do it. And that is both terrifying and awesome at the same time. I don't have enough power to overcome my own circumstances. Only Jesus can do that. He has the power to break your cycle and to overcome your circumstance. Jesus is the means by which we overcome. If you're trying to do it alone, you're trying to hold it all together, just let go of it. Let go. Follow Jesus. Allow him to break your cycle. It's going to be painful. There's this uh, incredible skit by a, a group called the Skit Guys called God's chisel and in it we have the God character and the man character and God's just chiseling away all the things that that God wants to remove from this man's sin like his sin his greed his grief his shame his guilt his passions that are that are of the flesh and not of Jesus and he's he's ow it hurts it hurts it hurts it's going to be painful when we allow God to transform us to break our cycle it'll hurt and there's a quote in, in that skit where, where the man is saying, God, I just, I'm tired of letting you down. And God says, oh, child, you're not the one holding me up. I hold you. And oftentimes we feel like it's on our shoulders and it's our fault that we've broken God's covenant and that he, he will never forgive us. We're too bad. We're too far gone. And I'm here this morning to tell you that Jesus is in the business of breaking cycles and he is the means by which you overcome your circumstances. Not by yourself. Through him. And so that leads us to the book of Mark. 
Right, so that's Jesus, the cycle breaker. The book of Mark presents the divine man of action, a man of action. And just like our culture support, we, we love it when we hear stories of, of, of people who get up early, they rise early, they roll up their sleeves, they get to work, and those are always really good stories. I am, I am not that person. I love to sleep and sleep in. We've got two sons. Uh, one's almost three and one's almost one. And our almost three-year-old has gotten in a really awful habit of getting up early and coming into our room. And it's the worst. Um, it's, it's like, there's like that moment you think, oh, that'd be so sweet. Like, he's coming in the morning to, to greet the day. And it's like, no, go back to bed. Why are you awake right now? And it's like, God's mercies are new every day, right? I get that. But only after 8 a.m. It's true. Um, that's not true. But, uh, but, Man, Mark presents this divine man of action. And just like our culture, our society kind of applauds and cheers on the idea of getting up early, getting to, to work, getting into action, the Roman Empire also was very much that way. They were very much uh, a, a culture that supports this idea of like, man, get to work. You got something to do. Get up. Get it going. Right? Uh, and, and that's where we see that they valued action. Right? The book of Mark, which is a great name for a book, uh, uses the word immediately, immediately, over 40 times in his book. It's like Mark, you know, had ADD or something, like immediately, immediately Jesus did, Jesus did that, immediately Jesus did this, right? And it's like boom, 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 and you got to really follow along. He's over 40 times in his book, and he used it to capture Jesus' determination to serve, to heal, to go to the cross. And with this, Mark captures how Jesus was a man of action determined to serve, love, and do what was best for others. And not only was Jesus the kind of person who would immediately get up and and get to action, he was the one with the power to accomplish great things. Mark repeatedly records Jesus' demonstration of power over disease, over nature, and of the spiritual world. Now, as opposed to many fakes in the day who were just trying to prove they were powerful, when Jesus came on the scene and would do something, he was proving that he was more than powerful. Right? These other guys like Bar Jesus and these other characters you encounter, they're, they're, they're proving, yeah, I'm powerful, I'm powerful, I'm powerful. Jesus comes in like, sit down, son. Like, I am more than powerful. And he does these things. Remain. Like, remember the, remember the story in Mark where Jesus heals the paralytic? This guy, right? In Mark chapter 2, starting there. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was home. I mean, okay, just think with me for a minute. If you're Jesus in this moment, I'd I'd be really annoyed, right? I'm just like, I'm back from a business trip, vacation, I just get home, I want to put my feet up, right? What happens? Hey, Jesus is home. Let's go, right? Like, he just got back, and they're like, hey, Jesus is back. Jesus is back. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And then all of a sudden, there's all these people at, his, at the house he's staying in. It's like, just give me a second, right? But that's not the case for Jesus. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. They came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And if I'm the owner of this house, I'm starting to get a little annoyed. Be like, Jesus, do you have any other friends? Like, just go hang out with them for a while. Got all these people in my house, uninvited guests. Now they're like ripping holes in my roof. What is happening? Right? But, but, but it goes on here. 
Uh, they open up the roof and they start to, to lower the paralytic man down to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving their thoughts in their heart, questioned them. <laughs> man, Jesus is so cool, right? Jesus is sitting there, and there's these scribes like over here, like off the corner, like, oh, Jesus, blah, blah. And they're like, but they're not even saying stuff out loud. It's all in their hearts. And Jesus is like, oh, what's that? You don't think I can do? Like, Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts, in their minds. That is, I couldn't be in the same room with him. I'd, I'd be too freaked out. It'd be like, Jesus would be preaching. He's like, why are you thinking about the Broncos game? <laughs> Mark, pay attention. And immediately, I paid attention, right? Um, and so Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But the, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns and he looks right at the paralytic man, and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like that. I love that that phrase there at the end, Mark just kind of slides that in there. Shouldn't that always be our experience when we encounter Jesus? Like I've never seen anything like that. That is amazing. Jesus was more than powerful. And so that brings us into the book of Luke. And, and Luke, the doctor, intelligent, right? He tells us about Jesus being the friend to the needy. Friend of and to the needy, right? And Luke loved that Jesus valued everyone. And really, if you follow Jesus' life, you see that. Jesus valued everyone, and especially the needy. Those who were just in need. And he's the one who recorded Jesus' famous response uh, about hanging out with tax collectors and sinners because of this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. It's the people who are sick need a doctor. Right? Right? And Luke also is the one who made it sure that we heard that Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I talked about earlier, I, uh, my wife Amy and I have two sons, Brian and Timothy, and when Brian, our first son, was, was born, um, it, it was a bit of a traumatic experience. He ended up being in the NICU for like a week, um, and, and, you know, the Delivery was happening. Mom did great. Baby did great. And we even got to hold him for a little bit. And you know, we're first-time parents, so we didn't really like, know. It was all very new. And uh, we didn't know what was going on. And so we're holding our baby, and they're like, okay, we're going to take him. We're going to like clean him up and take measurements and all that stuff. We're like, cool. That's, I mean, all right. And so they take our baby, which I guess is normal. And so they, they took our baby from us, and, and we're just sitting in our room like, all right, well. So that happened. Like, now what? Like, you, and they're like you've, there's no, like, we have no idea what to do, right? And so we're sitting there, we're sitting there, and it's kind of like a few minutes, a few minutes, and you're like, where is our, where's our, we had a baby. What happened to him, right? And so I get up, I, and I, 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 I peek out the door, 
Like, there's no one around. I'm like, all right. So I walk down to the nurse's station. I'm like, hey, um, no big deal. We had a baby. You guys took him, but never brought him back. Like, so then we find out, like, uh, he's, like, in the NICU, and, and, and uh, the next time I see him, he's, like, covered in tubes, and he's, like, got the uh, CPAP machines, like, little Darth Vader in there, and he's got, like, stuff coming out of his arms, and we're like, what happened? Just blindsided. And apparently he, like, aspirated and wasn't breathing right, and, like, his breathing wasn't normal, his oxygen levels were weird, and, like, all kinds of stuff. And as a first-time parent, no one tells you about that stuff. No one tells you, hey, that's a possibility. This is, this is a reality. And so you are just left like completely at a loss. And like there's nothing I can do. Can't touch him. I can't hold him. I can't like help in any way. And Amy couldn't, you know, get out of bed yet. And so this is all stuff I'm learning by myself. And I'm about to have to go back and tell my wife who just gave birth, like, hey, <laughs> our son's not okay. And, and you never want to deliver that news. And in that moment, like, I, I was needy. It's like, I don't know what to do. I need help. And so I go back. I'm talking to Amy, and, 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 and we're, like, I, we're both, like, sleep-deprived and, and don't really know what's going on. And, and then just after a little bit, we just kind of broke. And like, what do we do? And we're praying, and we're crying. And like, is he going to be Okay. Um, and thankfully, you know, it sounds weird, I'm glad that the nurses and doctors didn't, like, come and comfort us. Like, I'm glad they were with Brian and, like, making sure he was okay. But in that moment, it was like, we need something. We need some help. We need some comfort, some, some peace. And Jesus is in the business of being a friend to the needy. Jesus intentionally hung out with the people he knew needed him. And he valued everybody. And so this brings us to the book of John. And John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John. John presents the one who claims to be God. The one who claims to be God. Finally, John, John couldn't get away from telling uh, us that Jesus claimed to be God. Seven times he records Jesus making these I am statements that bring, him back, bring us back to, to God and Moses in the burning bush. I am, right? God makes these big statements and Jesus echoes them and, and says them himself. He says, I am. And it makes us realize that Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the one who claims to be God. I heard a story about the history of, of bread in America. The history of bread in America, right? Heard this, this story. And we used to think that white bread was the healthier option. That white bread was the healthier option because, hear this, because the bread makers couldn't hide sawdust in it. <laughs> it was healthier because we, we, they couldn't hide any of the sawdust. Now, obviously, eating bread without sawdust is going to be healthier. Um, but as we've, like, learned more, we, we know that wheat bread is a healthier option than white bread. And when Jesus makes one of these I am statements, he's identified that the people have misplaced what kind of bread is best for them. We see uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 hungry people from five loaves of bread and two fish. Later, Jesus tells the crowd that there's a deeper meaning to this miracle. There's something deeper going on here about me feeding you this food. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Most of us don't know what it's like to be hungry, truly hungry. About this time, like, we're getting near the end of the sermon, and, and we're going to sing again and communion. It's like our, our stomachs start grumbling. We're like, we got to beat the Baptists to lunch. Like, like, we start getting these thoughts. But the reality is a lot of us, most of us, if not all of us in this room, don't truly understand what it means to be truly hungry. I mean, to not know where your next meal is going to come from. Maybe some of us have experienced this, uh, but here in our culture in America, we typically don't, don't have this understanding as deep as a lot of the rest of the world. I, I've been honored to be a part of several mission trips to third world countries and, and to be with people who, who are just devastated. But there's something that I notice in those people that I don't see a whole lot here at home, and, and it's pure joy. If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you know, you're kicking a soccer ball with a, a nine-year-old little kid and just king back and forth, and it's like the look on their face. Because they have no idea where their next meal is coming from, but they understand what it means to trust in Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you're not going to be hungry ever again. We don't really get that. Because we don't know what it means to have to depend on him for something like that. And if you've been in that place, you do. You understand. Jesus is saying there's, there's more there. There's more. In the era in which Jesus fed these 5,000 people, food was much scarcer than it is today. And many people, man, they knew all too well what extreme hunger looked like and what it felt like. John wants to make sure that everyone knew that Jesus is God, and as God, he will fulfill our longing in ways that bread never will. Jesus will fulfill you, fulfill your longings in ways that bread or food or any other idol or any other thing in life ever will. Um, have, you, have you ever heard the analogy of the story uh, of the three-windowed room? And just imagine, imagine a four-walled room, but on three of the walls are, are a window, right? There's three windows, and, and there's three people who, who come and look inside each window. And, and the first one looks inside, and, and someone says, hey, what do you see? And he looks inside and says, oh, I see, I see a long gray hose, long gray fire hose. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. Well, what do you see? The number second guy says, oh, I, I see a flag, a gray flag. It's just still hanging right here in the window, a gray flag. Wow. All right. And what about you? Third guy says, well, well yeah, all I see is a gray wall. So the, so the first guy sees a gray fire hose, the second guy sees a gray flag, and the third guy just sees a gray wall. And then... The very same moment, instantaneously, the fire hose and the flag and the wall all start to shake. They'll start to move. And they take a step back and they realize, huh, it's an elephant. (laughs) 
three different perspectives of the same image, and it took all three of them to see what they were actually looking at. And this is the same thing of the Gospels. We get four guys who saw Jesus in different ways, who write about him, who record what he did, and we get four impressions, four perspectives of the same divine God. And so I don't know where you are today. Maybe you came in today and you're just crushed by the endless cycle of your sin. And it feels like I can't get out, I can't get out, I can't get out. What do I do? And and it's not until you get to the reality of who Jesus is, that he's the one who breaks the cycle. It's, It's not you. You don't have the power to do that. Jesus does. So you have to trust him. You have to lean more into him. And it's scary and it's hard. And maybe that's where you are today. That you need Jesus the cycle breaker. Maybe you came in here and you're needy. You're in a place where, where you need intervention. You need God to do something in your life. Jesus is in the business of just that. Being a friend. Being a friend in your brokenness. Maybe you just need that. Maybe you need to, to realize that, that Jesus is the one who will fulfill you, that there's nothing else. All these other pursuits are only going to end in brokenness and, and, and emptiness, and you need to trust in the one who is the bread of life. Maybe you just need to immediately realize that, that Jesus is more than powerful and more than enough, even for you. And so I don't know where you are, but I do know that most of us encounter one of those at at one point. And so today, may you see all four perspectives of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. Because we're not all the same. But Jesus is ready to work in your life, wherever you are. And once we step back and see all four images of Jesus, we get a clearer picture of who he really is. And that is worth celebrating.